Well, we do turn now to God's Word, the reading of it, and the preaching of it, 2 Samuel 7. And as we turn there, let's take that song we just sang and make it our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do turn to your word now with that desire which we express in song and in prayer. We say, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us in these moments to grasp the heights of your plans for us. And so we come to your word, Lord, with that sense of expectancy For we know that you are pleased to do great things by your great word. Pleased to open our eyes to behold the wonders here, the heights of your plans for us. And we know that because we've experienced it. We can remember, we can look back. We have tasted and seen your word is true and good and that you are pleased to bless it among your people. And so we're emboldened to ask you to do that again now. Speak, O Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 7. I'll get us started this morning by reading for us verses 1 through 17. You can see in your bulletin that's not where we're going to train our attention today. But this is what we covered last week, and it's good for us to hear it again in order to set the stage for what we are going to focus on this week. So listen now, 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And that's as far as we got Last Sunday, verses 1 through 17. Remember, these were great days for David. God had blessed him. God had blessed him greatly. And that's why David wanted to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. It seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like a fitting gesture, a good project to take on. Given the fact that David had been blessed in all of these ways, so he wanted to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. And God's response, in effect, was, no, but I've got something even better. David, I've got promises for you. And so last week, we noticed what those promises were, the four of them. The promise of prominence. Because he says, I'll make for you a great name. And the promise of place. Because he says, I'll appoint a place for my people and I will plant them. And the promise of peace. Because he says, my people will be disturbed no more in that place I give them. And then finally, the promise of posterity. Because the word comes to David, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. God promised all of those things to David. And all of those promises came true. In measure, they came true in David's own reign. And then in the reign of his son Solomon after him. And then they continued to come true in different ways for generations and generations after Solomon's reign. And then they finally and fully came true in our King Jesus. So great promises, staggering promises that God made to David there in the first part of the chapter. And you can tell that David has a sense of just how lofty and staggering these promises are. And you can tell that from the way that David goes on to pray, beginning at verse 18. This chapter is all about dialogue. There's no action here after many of the action-packed chapters that we've been reading. 2 Samuel 7 is not like that. It's all dialogue. There's no action here, no battle scenes, no gathering of the people, no glorious festivals and sacrifices, nothing like that. It's all speaking. It's all dialogue. But what dialogue it is. After God speaks and makes these great promises, then David replies, replies in a great and humble prayer. So listen now, beginning at verse 18. Let's keep going. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, 
And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things? By driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you have established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So that's the rest of the chapter. That's how David goes on to pray. Last week I was saying that 2 Samuel 7 is what we might call a but wait, there's more moment for David. As blessed as David was, as, as highly as he'd been favored by God, here he's stunned by the revelation of just how much God intends to exalt him even more highly than the heights he's already attained. But wait, there's more. I said last week, it's like that birthday party or that retirement party and the gifts and the honors just keep coming. You might think that all the gifts have been given. You might think that all of the honors have been bestowed. But wait, there's more. And you can picture the look of surprise on that person's face and it's, it's overwhelming, especially because the gifts and the honors become greater and greater as the party goes on. I offered up some examples. It's one thing to be taken to your favorite restaurant for your birthday, but wait. We've flown in all your old college buddies and they're waiting at the table when you get there, that kind of thing. Well, this morning we can keep going with that same illustration. This morning we can say, what always happens at that 
party, that birthday party, that retirement party, after all of the gifts and honors have been given and there's no more that are coming, that's when people start to say, speech, speech. And maybe they even tap their glasses with their little party forks or party spoons. Speech, speech. That's when people start urging the one who's been honored with these ever-heightening waves of recognition to say something about the occasion. And you know how it goes. You've probably been to one of those parties. Maybe you're the one who was honored like that. And you were the one who was being urged to say something. And you remember how it felt. People start saying, speech, speech. And the room gets quiet. And the one who's being honored hardly knows what to say. And you can't blame them, because it's all so much. No wonder it's hard to know what to say in that moment. It's one thing when you know that you're going to be receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award at the gala weeks in advance, and you've got all that time to think through what you want to say and exactly how you want to say it, and you can write it down. But it's a very different thing. If the honors practically come out of nowhere and you're stunned and in that moment and in the moments that follow, you've got to think of what to say. And whenever that's the case, you didn't have weeks in advance. You're stunned in the moment. Whenever that's the case, what comes out of you in your speech has a way of reflecting what is truly deeply inside of you, brings out who you are. Now, that can certainly be the case with prepared remarks, that's true. But when you're caught off guard, in a different way, it it brings out of you who you naturally are now, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you interpret gifts and honors, the way you, you tend to express it all. In that moment, it's instinctive. It's spontaneous. It's who you are, unprepared, unguarded. This is a moment like that for David. So this morning we go from, but wait, there's more, to speech, speech. And in this case, the speech is speaking to God, which makes it feel all the more momentous. And waiting the speech that's going to be made. And in this case, it it certainly does have a way of bringing out of David what's truly and deeply inside of him. And that's one of the things that makes this passage so beautiful. So let's take a look at it. Look at verse 18. See how the whole thing is introduced. Verse 18 says this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He went in and sat before the Lord. Presumably, he went in to the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was being housed at that point. The very tent that David wanted to replace with a solid place. A place like his own place. So he goes in and it says here that David sat before God. Not that God was more present in that tent in terms of the fullness of his divine being... But in the sense that the people of Israel were rightly more aware of God's presence in that place. That's what the place was for. In part, to give the people a sense of 
his presence with them as their God. And so it makes sense that David himself should go into that place and sit before God. So he goes in, he sits, and he prays, and it's a moving prayer. And there's so much that we can learn from it, so much that we can learn from David as we eavesdrop on his prayer. And there are three things I want to highlight here, three virtues that are reflected in David's prayer, three principles that we can learn from him. And the first of them is the virtue of humility. The first of them is humility. And and we we began to notice this a little bit last week, but now we're really going to take hold of it. What's the first thing David says in verse 18? Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So here, he's only got in mind the things that have happened to him up to this point. And even that feels like too much to comprehend, too great to grasp. You have brought me thus far. And thinking about David's life, just how far was Thus far. Well, remember back in verse 8, the Lord reminded David. Verse 8, the Lord said to him, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Even putting it that way, following the sheep. I took you from the pasture, from shepherd to king. That's how far was Thus far. And so he says, who am I? What is my house? Brings to mind Psalm 8. Psalm 8 where it says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Same idea that these rhetorical questions in the presence of God that grow out of the deep soil of deep humility. Psalm 8, what is man? That you're mindful of him. Just that much is staggering. That God provides life and breath for any human being. Creature of the dust. Now a sinful creature at that. Well, here's David. He's been given way more than just life and breath like any man. David has been given kingly promises that no one's ever received before him. So this is Psalm 8 and beyond. And David has a sense of how magnificent are the blessings that he's already received. And it shows in the way that he prays. I think of the, um, the old story that's been told of the, the minister who was regularly asked to ask the Lord's blessing before a meal. And the story goes that if the meal was sufficient, relatively ordinary, he would close his eyes and bow his head and say, Lord, we thank thee even for the least of these thy mercies. But if it was a glorious spread, oh, he spreads his hands and says, oh, bountiful Jehovah. That's a prayer for the dining room table. Well, something like that is going on here. David looks out on the magnificent spread 
of the blessings that he's received thus far. The heights to which he's been exalted thus far. And it's so bountiful, Job. Who am I that you should deal so bountifully with me? David, deeply humbled. At one and the same time, he's got a sense of these two realities, how greatly God had blessed him and how deeply undeserving he was to be blessed like that. So the principle we can glean here about humility, our first, is this, that being honored rightly leads to being humbled. It ought to have that effect. Being honored rightly leads to being humbled. And and here we want to get clear on what humility is and isn't. Because this moment in David's life sheds very important light on that. What humility is and is not. Put positively, humility is a matter of knowing your place before God. That's one way of summing it up. It's a matter of knowing your place before God as a mere creature of the dust and now as a Christian believer, a redeemed sinner as well. Knowing your place before God and not just knowing it in your head, but embracing that place, actually delighting in what you've come to realize about yourself before God. That's humility. Put negatively, humility is not a matter of denying the gifts and the callings that you've been given by God. Humility is not a matter of pretending that you haven't really been blessed and honored in the ways that you have. In some cultures, that's practically expected of you. It's hailed as a virtue to say, oh, I'm nothing, don't mind me. I can't do anything, don't look at me. That's not true humility. That's not biblical humility. The real thing is what we see right here in King David. On the one hand, there's no pretending here that he had not been honored and exalted and called to serve. David knew very well that he had been. On the other hand, he marvels That he has been honored and exalted and called to serve in all of these ways. That's the real thing. Knowing your place before God and when you know it, like David knew it, you're amazed and you say, oh, bountiful Jehovah. Who am I? Every Christian rightly has that sense of himself because we have been. Blessed, honored, raised, seated with Christ. And so every Christian rightly says, Who am I that you've brought me thus far, that you've raised me to the heights where I find myself now? Who am I that you've brought me, O Lord, from hating you to loving you, from guilt to forgiveness, from hopelessness to heavenliness, From spiritual orphan status to membership in the family of God. Who am I? And Christian, I want to challenge you today. Do you have that sense of yourself? And does it show in the way that you pray? Do you ever go in and sit before God and just marvel? 
Do you ever say in prayer, wow, who am I to have been blessed like this? Do you ever have those moments of speechlessness in prayer? It seems like a contradiction since prayer is a speaking and then we find ourselves speechless when we go in and sit before God to talk to him. Or are you always in so much of a hurry that even in prayer, you're in too much of a hurry to be humbled that the Lord has brought you thus far? As I was working on this sermon, I had a chance to put it into practice. I work on my sermons and my study at home. And at one point working on this, I pushed back from my desk and just looked around my study at home. And all around me are these reminders of God's goodness to me, just a kid from Pittsburgh. The pictures of Christy and the kids and the memorabilia from Pittsburgh and Charlottesville and Philadelphia and the diplomas on the walls and the growing collection of guitars. Thank you, Will. And the books, which are in their own ways a reflection of the journey that it's been, and the old cane in the corner that I don't have to use anymore because I'm not sick like that anymore, just a kid from Pittsburgh. And I I look around, I do this 360 tour of the study, and it's all right there. And all of those earthly blessings finally lift my gaze from earth to heaven to the one blessing I've been given that can never be taken away, and that is Christ. And that is union with Christ and knowing God in Christ. Who am I that you have brought me thus far? Christian, never forget where you were or where you would be apart from God's grace. And against that backdrop, contemplate where he's brought you today. Because if you're going to know your place before God, real humility, you've got to know all of that and bask in it. So that's the first. Humility. Being honored rightly fosters that in your soul. Here's the second. From humility to God-centeredness. We'll put it that way. God-centeredness. The whole point of this chapter is that the Lord hasn't just dealt bountifully with David up to this point in the past. He's now made these staggering promises to David for the future. And it's here especially that David's heart for God, David is a man after God's own heart. Here especially, this comes through. Look look at verse 19. Because here's where David pivots from, I've been blessed thus far to... What's been promised now for the future. Look at verse 19. Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. I'll just press pause there and comment. That phrase there, not an easy one to translate from the Hebrew. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That's the way we've got it 
in our English Standard Version. Depending upon what Bible translation you've got there, it might read differently. Our ESV reads, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And it certainly is that. What David is reflecting upon here is truth not just for himself. Keep going. Verse 20. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. You see the God-centeredness here. Therefore, you are great. There's none like you. There's no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And he goes on from there to review God's gracious dealings with the people of Israel in the past. What David is putting on display here is God-centeredness in in two different ways. First of all, David is overwhelmed with who God is. Do you hear that coming through? He's overwhelmed with who God is. He says, you are great. There's none like you. There's no God beside you. Lord, you've made these promises according to your own heart. So that David gets these promises from God and he sees in them a reflection of the very heart of God. And isn't that the way words work, including words of promise? Just as our own words reveal what's in our hearts, it works that way with God too. And David had eyes to see it, to see the greatness of God. So there's that. He's overwhelmed with who God is. But then second, he's also overwhelmed with what God has done. And and not just with what God has done for David personally, but what he's done in the past for the people as a whole. He says, who is like your people, Israel? Brings to mind what Moses said to the people hundreds of years before this. This is back in Deuteronomy 4. And here's Moses reminding the people that God had dealt graciously with them unlike any other people on earth. Deuteronomy 4, Moses says this, Ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? And he goes on from there. Has this ever happened? No, people of Israel, this has never happened. This is unheard of. This is unprecedented. This kind of redemption by this kind of God forging this kind of unbreakable covenant bond. So Moses said all of that to the people way back in Deuteronomy, hundreds of years before David. Well, apparently, and this is the way it was supposed to work, that was all passed down. Because David can say in his day, David can say in this prayer, we have heard. So what Moses sought to impress upon the people hundreds of years before, yes, it had been written down and handed over, passed on, so that King David in his own day can say yes. We have heard tradition had happened. So that when even David's on the receiving end of these great promises for the future, he can't help but think of Israel's past. 
Because he knows it's all of a piece. It's all one grand unfolding saving plan. So yes, on the one hand, these are unprecedented promises that David is getting here in this chapter. Here's something new. Nothing less than a personal guarantee of an eternal kingly line. And yet on the other hand, there's a sense in which this is what God has always been like. So it doesn't come out of nowhere. God's always been gracious like this. Dealing with his people in this way. So in both of these ways. Here is David's God-centeredness. He's overwhelmed with who God is. You are great. And he's overwhelmed with what God has done. Leading all the way up to his own day. Who God is. And what God has done. The principle here is that grace rightly leads to this kind of God-centeredness. To bask in the blessings of God is not to become selfish and self-absorbed, curved in on the blessings apart from God. No, to bask in the blessings rightly is to become absorbed with the God who gave them. Who He is and what He's done. Christian, are you God-absorbed? As you think about what your God is like and how greatly he's blessed you in Jesus, are you God-absorbed? Are you taken with who God is? Is there much praise in your prayers? And are you taken with what God has done? Do you rightly have a sense that you're numbered among the most blessed and privileged companies on earth to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ on earth. There's no people like it. There never has been. There never will be. And Christian, you are blessed. You are privileged to be numbered among her ranks. Be absorbed with who God is and with what God has done, including making you a member of this people that's blessed unlike any people. May that kind of God-centeredness be yours and mine. So the first was humility, because being honored fosters humility. The second was God-centeredness. Because the grace of God leads us there too. And now here's the third. The third of three. And it is prayerfulness. Don't overlook the fact that David is led to pray. In response to what he hears. Including asking God's blessing in prayer. Look at verse 25. Look again at how David keeps going. After the humility, who am I? And after the God-centeredness, you are great and you have done great things. Then comes verse 25. Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Look down to verse 27. You have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. 
And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is one of my favorite aspects of this whole chapter. And this chapter, as we've said before, is one of the high peaks in the whole mountain range of biblical revelation. And this is one of the most thrilling and challenging aspects of it. Think about it. David receives these promises from God. God speaks to David and says, I'm going to do all of these things for you and for my people. So what does David do in response? He prays. He asks God to do those very things. And not only does he ask God to do them, but even in the course of asking that, it's as if he keeps going back and reminding God that he had made the promises. Here, too, you can can imagine an objection that that might be lodged against our faith as those who would be a praying people. The non Christian might object. And say, look, you Christians, your religion doesn't make any sense. On the one hand, you talk all about the promises of God. You you believe all of these things that are certain to happen because your sovereign God will sovereignly make them happen. On the other hand, you pray. In other words, you talk to God, so goes the objection. You talk to God as if all those things are uncertain to happen. So the allegation is, Christian, your religion doesn't make any sense. Has God promised these things or hasn't he? And if he has, why waste your breath asking him to do them? Why don't you just go quiet and sit back and watch it happen? Well, the answer is this. The answer is that promises... Properly produce prayer. Promises properly produce prayer. And that's true for these two reasons at least. The first of them has to do with what prayer is. What is prayer? And I love the way our shorter catechism answers that question. Answer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. You hear that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. Well then, the promises of God properly produce prayer because the promises of God produce desires. In our souls. Desires that will not be denied. Desires that cannot be snuffed out. Desires that burn deeply in our souls. Just try to hold those desires in as you reflect upon the promises of God. You cannot. Not for long. Just try to keep quiet in the presence of God. In the presence of your good and wise and mighty and promise-making, promise-keeping God. You cannot. Not for long. Not if your heart is really taken with those promises and fixed on them. Promises properly produce 
prayer because promises produce those desires. And that's what prayer is. It's the expression of the desires that God himself as maker and redeemer has created within us. So there's that, first of all. There's what prayer is. And then this, second of all, this is part of, also part of the answer to the allegation. Think about how prayer works. Not just what prayer is, the offering up of our desires, but how prayer works in God's scheme. God has not only promised certain outcomes, he's also determined that in the great complex of cause and effect by which he's going to bring about those outcomes, he's determined that he's going to use our prayer. He's going to incorporate our petitions in the way that he brings his promises to pass. God has determined not only the ends, but also the means of getting there. And sure enough, lo and behold, he's appointed that our praying is one of those means. So prayer isn't in contradiction to the promises of God. Prayer is one of the things that God uses to keep his promises. Now, that does not mean, we've got to admit our, our limitations here, we're humbled again. That does not mean that we can see clearly in this life how he uses our prayers. So we can be honest, that there's a fair amount of mystery from our vantage point in this life when it comes to this business of God's acting and our praying. And we've all known that, I expect, in our own experience. How often has it been the case That you ask God for something and he grants it. And so it seems that prayer has been answered, but then the next day he takes it away. Or it breaks. Or it turns out in the unfolding of time that what you thought was going to be a blessing turns out to be something of a curse, a burden. So we don't know all the details. We don't know everything about how prayer works. But we do know this basic truth that it works. Somehow, in God's plan, our praying matters in the fulfillment of the divine promises. And there is nothing contradictory about that. So instead of God's promises cutting the nerve of our praying so that we're rendered mute, it works just the other way. It's precisely the promises of God that drive us to pray. And I want to say, that's true even when we're praying to God about things that he hasn't promised. And that's part of our our prayer life as well. We go to God to express our desires about uncertain things. Even then, it's the promises of God, those underlying promises that drive us to pray, that help us to pray, that even shape and inform the way that we pray. Because even when we're praying for something uncertain, something unpromised, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that God is going to work out that circumstance according to what he has promised, which is to advance the cause of his own glory and the good of his people in this age until we reach the end of it. That ought to be the foundation of your own prayer life, the driving force of your own prayer life, the promises of God. So Christian, think about the promises that God has made to you. 
He has promised that He will forgive you when you go to Him in faith and repent and confess your sins and seek His mercy. He's promised that. Well then, do it. Pray. Ask His mercy when you find that you failed Him. Christian, He has promised that He's going to make you more like Christ until you are perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in the age to come. Christian, God has promised to welcome you in Christ when the course of your life is through. Christian, God has promised to build His church in this age. He's promised all of those things and you can take them personally and that ought to have you running to the throne of grace in prayer. Asking God to do the things that He's promised. Like the little boy who says to his father, Daddy, you promised. You can go to the Almighty and you can say to Him, Abba, Father, you promised. Let it be so. Father, you promised your own son that you would give him the world. Let it be so. Father, you promised your son, the Lord Jesus, that you would give him me forever. Let it be so. It's as if we go in and sit before God and we open our Bibles and we point to the promises that we find there and we say, see, see the promises. Not because we're at all concerned that God has forgotten, but because we're the ones who are prone to forget. And it is a great blessing and an encouragement to be reminded in prayer with an open Bible Of the things that God has said he will surely do. So in a little bit we're going to sing together. We're going to sing that hymn. Come my soul thy suit prepare. And I I love the language of that hymn. Large petitions with thee bring. None can ever ask too much. Our petitions can be so large. Because his promises were even larger first. Nothing less than heaven and the world to come. And that's as large a promise as you can get. Large petitions with thee bring. None can ever ask too much. So brothers and sisters, let us learn from King David today. This man after God's own heart in prayer. Being honored rightly leads to being humbled. Grace rightly leads to God-centeredness. And sure enough, promises properly produce prayer. We get to eavesdrop on David's prayer like this because it's recorded for us in Holy Scripture. Your prayers aren't going into the Bible. Your private prayers, very likely no one's And to hear them apart from you and God. But the question is this. If people could somehow eavesdrop on your private prayers, would they learn anything about humility and God-centeredness and about prayerfulness produced by His promises? Would your prayers... Teach lessons like those 
even to yourself. Think about it. And pray about it. And let's do that now. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you that in the Psalms you are called the God who hears prayer. It's practically one of your names now. The prayer hearing God. We would take to heart what we have learned today as we've listened in on David's prayer. You have blessed us greatly. Who are we to be blessed as we are? So may your honoring us lead to humility. So may your grace in our lives lead us to God-centeredness. May we be increasingly absorbed with and overwhelmed by who you are and what you have done, and not just for ourselves, but for the church, for there is no people on earth like the church. And we do pray, Father, that your promises would fuel our prayers. Thank you for the desires that your promises work in our souls. May we be a people who express those desires back to you in prayer. Even reminding ourselves as we talk to you of what you have said first. Thank you for these great and precious promises. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.